Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like fire training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Candle. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is FDNY Battalion Chief Danny Sheridan. Danny has 37 years on the job and is currently serving as the commander of the 3rd Battalion in the South Bronx. He has a bachelor's in business administration and is a frequent contributor to fireengineering.com, where you can also find his long-running podcast, The First Two Battalion Chief. He authored the forcible entry chapter in the Fire Engineering Handbook for Firefighter 1 and 2 and was a keynote speaker at FDIC 23 presenting The Invisible Hand on the Fireground. Inside today's episode, mentored by the War Years generation, Never Stop Learning, the huge cultural shift regarding ventilation, going above the fire, and staffing the first line. Let's get curious and dive in. So I'd like to start with, by saying that I've been following your, uh, your first, uh, first Do Battalion Chief podcast. And then recently I also came across uh, several articles that you've written that had interesting uh, topics that I thought would be um, something we could discuss today that would be valuable to um, get your perspective on. and. Um, to start with, I'd like to start with an article that you wrote about your experience at the UL FSRI Fire Dynamics <clears throat> Boot Camp. And specifically, I'd like to hear about what it was like to be there um, and the, be with the other participants and what you guys did there. But then also, how has it benefited you since that time? And maybe how have some of those things come back that you've been able to implement and maybe that your department has been able to implement as, as a result of having attended. Right. So the UL was definitely in, I want to say May of 2000, I want to say 17, right. Cause my daughter would have been 20, maybe 2018 now. I'm not sure. My daughter, when did you graduate college? When you 22 or whatever. So it was 17 or 18, but it was, um, Frankly, we've had uh, kind of put this together with UL and Dan Majkowski and Steve Kerba, and he's very involved with UL, you know, so he wanted to bring this to the FDNY. So they chose a whole bunch of uh, senior guys from the FDNY, officers, uh, firefighters, chiefs, and then they invited uh, some big cities, the major leagues, uh, Houston, Chicago, Philly, Boston, uh, Miami. 
L.A. I, you know, there was all the biggies were there, you know. And uh, there was just, uh, you know, like a handful from each department. And, uh, you know, uh, we got a nice booklet and there was all these studies that they had done. And really basically just talking about how the fire, the environment, the fire ground has changed since, uh, you know, since I came on a job anyway. I came on a job in 86. And however, how things have changed. And uh, it was very interesting. There was a lot of interesting conversations, like with some of our guys, some of the old guys that uh, are very, very stuck in their ways, you know, and uh, not really open to change. And I find myself as being a person who is very open to to change if it's appropriate, you know, if, if it makes sense, let's say. And, uh, you know, there were certain tenets that we were we were taught when we came on a job. Um, one of them was uh, never, never open the line on smoke, you know, and then we've kind of dispelled that myth because we know that we have this kind of, this kind of very black smoke sometimes and high heat, but no visible fire. But it's like the smoke is 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 like flammable, you know, um, you know, ventilation, major major changes in ventilation, you know, so much you know like the the flow path and and uh, controlling the flow path and and you know not venting too early and. Um, so things of that nature. And it was interesting to hear everyone's perspective. But, uh, you know, one of the places where we got the most pushback was this whole concept of uh, doing like so-called uh, an indirect attack, let's say, for lack of a better term, where, you know, we would knock the fire down from the outside before moving in. And, uh, you know, a lot of bravado goes along with that because guys, uh, firefighters, you know, they want to be inside. But uh, we've learning like one of the segments had to do with basement fires. And Adam Thiel, he's the commissioner of Philly, does a nice presentation for UL talking about, you know, hitting the, the fire and softening it up before we, we go down. Because we were taught when we came on that, you know, we have, we're at the top of the stairs, so we're at the top of that flow path, and that we have to get down under that flow, you know, that that flow path and get down under quickly and then put the fire out and, you know, we'll, we see it, we see the science, you know, and we are learning that, you know, like, yeah, let's, let's hit it from the outside, knock it down. Uh, we talked a lot about these four S's when it comes to the, the stream from the outside. And we want to make sure that we have a, a straight stream, keep it straight, a smooth bore, um, steep angle, and we want to make a sprinkler effect, and that that's kind of counterintuitive. It's it goes kind of against what I learned when I was on the job and I was in a towel ladder because you know my thinking always was get that bucket right up to the window and just knock down walls, tear the cockloft, tear the ceilings apart, and get that that water into the into the seat of the fire and. Uh, you see, like this prop that I taught on, I did uh, something for the FDNY. We did this remote tactical training, and they built a, a prop. It's all a plexiglass, and uh, we set up streamers, and you could see how the airflow moves around. So when you see it, 
and you know a lot of skeptics come away very um convinced or their mindset is all changed because um you know you can't argue with the facts i mean when you see it you know it's very very hard to dispute so i think i think the 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 beauty about ul is like it's a just a laboratory you know and it's it's just science you know it's pure science and you know we have the practical end and it gives us as firefighters a better understanding of what we're dealing with because you know when i came on the job in 86 it was the like the very very tail end of what they call the war years right and i worked yeah. with all the firefighters in 17 truck had pretty much been through the war years and you know they were going to five, six, seven fires on a, on a shift, you know? And, uh, you know, it just became like to the point where they would just basically pick up the hose, throw it on the rigging, go down the block to the next fire. So that's, you know, I don't think they ever, um, gave it much thought. Right. You know, but back then the contents were different. Uh, Everything's cellulose based, right. You know, people didn't have much furnishings. Um, there were no, Thermal pane windows, everything was single pane. It was the R values were, were like negligible. Uh, the building's very leaky. And, uh, you know, fires didn't flash over very quickly. I mean, I, I can remember how many times crawling down a hallway with my, my water can and finding a room and knocking down the whole room with my can, you know. And now, gee, I mean, fires are flashing over with the fuel loads that we have. Gosh, man, you know, like two, three minutes, man, they just hit and flash over and then they decay and mm-hmm. then they, they flash again. Right. So that was another big takeaway. Like, you know, just because it flashed, let's still be careful because everything is still in there. We don't want to create another uh, flash over. And that's how guys have gotten hurt. So I, I would say just the takeaway for me and for the, um, for most of the firefighters that were there, the ones that were, amiable to what they were saying was that it gave us a much broader understanding of how far behaves, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, there were a few guys that didn't go along with it and, and fought it tooth and nail. And there was some arguments and, uh, you know, it was a little uncomfortable, but, um, you know, I'm very open to like hearing, you know, what's going on because I noticed it like, I remember uh, back, I don't know when it was, I, maybe I was just a brand new lieutenant in 95, and I started noticing that the the fires were just like getting uh, more intense. You know, people people had more stuff. Like, you know, here's a tell. Like, you go down into the, like, I work in a lot of apartment buildings, you know, high rises and whatnot, and you go into the uh, garbage room, you know, the refuge room. And you see boxes of like big TVs and computers and you name it. And the, the furniture today is like all poly styrenes and, and whatnot. And, you know, when I came on, I mean, people, you go into the apartment, they had an old straw stuffed mattress and a table and maybe, maybe a TV and, a, and a, you know, maybe a coffee table and a few chairs. But that was it. You know, now, um, you know, these apartments uh, and hoarding is like becoming 
little bit of a, a phenomenon. I mean, or clutter, or how, whatever you want to call it, but people are definitely storing more things in their in their apartments and houses. And it's again, that's adding to the fuel load, right? So um, all this, yeah. stuff, there's a lot of uh, components that are making up the the new fire dynamics. You mentioned that that uh, at the boot camp that there were there were some people that fought it tooth and nail and, and left that experience maybe um, not being convinced. Right. Would you say that by and large, though, it was an eye opening experience for uh, the bulk of the attendees? I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I know that. Um, yeah, I would say I was definitely. I was very much uh, not surprised, but just it was just amazing to see some of these videos and, you know, just to see the violence with, you know, how fast fires are accelerating now. You know, I think the blessing is that fires have gotten to the point where they, they flash so quickly that we're not in harm's way because they flash and then they go into that decay staging, you know, so we're less inclined to be caught in that flashover. But on the flip side of that, I'm sure the survival rates of uh, civilians is, is greatly diminished with uh, the way, you know, especially fires that happen, you know, like in the middle of the night, I mean, smoke alarm goes off. They better get out because that, <laughs> that fire is going to flash over in, in, in a matter of seconds, minutes, you know, yeah, and hopefully uh, they have their door closed because of the way stuff yeah. moves through the building so fast. A funny, a funny thing you should say that, right? I, I did a Twitter one time, and my kids were blown away because I had a million. My kids couldn't believe it that I had a million people like liked it or whatever it was on. I think it right. was Instagram. I think Insta, Twitter, or Instagram, one of those things. And like they just could not believe that I had posted something that would get a million views, but I had posted something about keeping the door closed, and it's just—it's amazing, it's remarkable. Like I, I've been in in fires where the whole room, living room, bed, whatever, is burnt out, and the door that's closed, the room behind it is nothing. Nothing happened. Like it wasn't like wasn't even a fire. So yeah. Um, that's a, that's a big, that's a big deal closing that door because that's, uh, you know, what we're doing is we're trying to stop this thing. You know, we want to, we want to get the, keep the oxygen away from, from the, the fire because it needs, it's, it's like a, it's like a living being it needs that oxygen. And if we starve it, it's not going to, it's not going to kill us. You know, you mentioned that you're, you think of yourself as somebody that's open to change. And I have to say that when I referenced those articles at the beginning of the show, that was the impression that I had was that here's somebody that's been on the job 38 or 39 years. You've had enough experience to see the tail end of the war years and what guys like me or the guys that are hiring on more recently um, just read about. Right. These are the only fuels we've ever really known is the way it is today. So I think you bring a unique perspective on change and the ability to change. And um, so I think that's that's 
why I want to cover some of these things with you. I and mean, I also think it's a, it's a really good opportunity to, uh, for all of us to benefit from your experience because it's pretty unique to, to have a career that spans that much of the timeline. Um, when you went back to work, how, I mean, I think the purpose of the, of the boot camp was to bring influential, experienced leaders and trainers in to educate them, make an impression on them so that they could go back to their home departments and help this filter down to the rest. Have you seen that happen at FDNY and um, at a department level, or how about even just at a shift level with your experience and how you're able to impact the people on your battalion? Um, I, I've used this tactic um, and I've gotten pushback. I, I had one fire in particular. I remember we had a basement fire and I told the engine company to knock it down first through the windows. And then um, before they went down, and they had another fire where I told them I, afterwards, I said, why didn't you think about doing this? You took a beating going down these stairs. And um, why didn't you consider this? And then ironically, the captain uh, who later on became a deputy chief used this tactic of hitting the fire through the windows and saved the lives of three firefighters. It was, a, you know, it was publicized nationally, you know, this video. And, uh, you know, I'm basically the one that told them, I said, listen, man, you know, should have just knocked it down from the outside, you know. And uh, so I would say that um, I don't, you know, there's still – we're still a very aggressive interior department. I don't foresee the FDNY or any of the big boys ever saying, hey, you know what? We're going to go to this, uh, you know, this defensive attack, you know, whatever we want to call it. Um, because I think there's, but I think there's value in it. Like I taught this class recently at the New York State Fire Chiefs. And, you know, for a department that shows up with like five or six firefighters, you know, then this may be something that they may want to look at, you know, because, it, you know, the manpower requirements and the safety factor is a lot different. See, I show up on a first alarm assignment with probably um, four engines. I have six, they're 24, 30, you know, like 50 or so firefighters, you know. So, uh, you know, I have plenty of depth, you know, like I'm not worried about. You know, I have plenty of help to get that first line in operation, you know. But, uh, you know, if I was showing up with maybe eight firefighters, you know, that could be a whole different story, you know. And I think it also depends on the location of the fire. I mean, if if it's a – like I had a fire recently – not recently, but it was about two years ago where we couldn't even open the front door. There was so much clutter, you know. And uh, – Basically, I just told the, the firefighters, I said, listen, take it out. Let's knock it down through the window. Let's get it all knocked down. And then we'll figure out how we're going to get into the apartment. You know, So uh, I think it definitely, I think what happened with UL, it, it took the stigma away from it. You know, it took away that whole, like, I, I know there's a stigma attached to it, you know, and, uh, but there's sometimes that it's, it's, it's truly needed. Like, you know. I've watched some of my own department's videos and, you know, I'm watching something burn for like 20 minutes. And I'm like saying to myself, like, why aren't they just 
taking it from the from the towel line. You know why are they why are they letting this thing to they can't get in the front door they have problems with the whatever forceful entry. You know why are they continuing to just watch this thing burn? You know and uh, so I think it, it has its place, but I don't think this tactic, this whole uh, you know hitting it from the uh, the outside to soften things up is ever going to become a primary tactic in my department. I, I don't see it in my lifetime anyway, but uh, who knows uh, down the road, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I know that I would say that just firsthand, I, I could tell you that the, the fire load has changed. Like, like I, I came in on, on the job and all the guys that broke me in already had like 20 years on a job. And, you know, you look at their gear, it's all the coats are banged up and the helmets. I mean, let's, let's face it. We all, we all do that. We look at guys' gear and we make a little judgment, you know. And, uh, you know, and there's certain places where guys' gear is, like, clean. Like, then it just never gets used, you know. And, uh, but um, <laughs> I look at, I go to different firehouses in my battalion and I, I look at the officers and the firefighters, the helmets today. You know, I can't believe, like, I can't even read the numbers on the front pieces anymore. I mean, that's, that's what's. That's a tell. That's telling me that, you know, what they're being exposed to is just is tremendous amount of heat. Um, you know, the smoke is like like black, like, you know, lights out. Like when I came on a job, I mean, you know, you pop the door and, you you know, you, you feel the heat, you know, whatever. You got a room or two burning. and uh, But it wasn't that dense black smoke like you like lights out stuff. It was like. You can kind of see if you got down low, you look under and, you you know, you, you could see the fire burning a little bit. And the smoke was more of a gray, grayish, brownish color. But like the stuff today is just. It's like it reminds me of like um, what I what I liken it to is that, you know, we used to get a lot of arson fires. Right. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unusual for someone to pour like five gallons of gasoline or diesel or whatever and light a place up, you know? And I think the BTUs and, and the fuel that's in some of these houses and apartments today is equivalent to like us pouring five gallons of gasoline into the, into an apartment. Because I know that um, if you, if you take a pound of plastics and two pounds of wood, the BTUs are about the same. And I don't know how much, I'd have to look it up how much BTUs is in a gallon of gasoline, but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's something that's uh, equatable there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the, with the, um, the numbers where you can compare fuel loads, but just the, the general takeaway being that the heat release rate in today's fuels is so high. It's, I just think of it as, there's just a ton more energy that's just sitting there. It's just potential energy waiting to to get lit off, and it's going to come at you faster than than cellulose can. Um, you mentioned you mentioned that um, you don't see a transitional or, or hitting it outside first as as being a primary tactic in your department, at least in your your lifetime, mm-hmm. but. But what about some of the other principles that get taught at the UL? Like we're talking about this really fuel-rich smoke that's really hot, that's discoloring helmets and and gear. That means mm-hmm. they're being exposed to unburnt fuel that's ready to light off. Mm-hmm. 
how is FDNY today about putting water on the fuel when they're inside or putting it on the smoke, the unburned fuel in the smoke? What I think one of the, the one of the biggest takeaways and one of the greatest benefits we got, and it's it's been a big cultural change, is that we're much better with ventilation. Like it used to be, I could I could still remember written in the book, like the OV, our outside vent firefighter, he would be on the fire escape and you know, and he would either listen for the the irons the you know to stop hitting or he would watch the line get charged and you know he'd see water in the line and then he would kind of know okay you know it's time to vent you know and uh we've 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 really come a long way with with coordinating ventilation one of the best videos i use it in a lot of my presentations when i when i go out and do talk and i talk about ventilation and it was actually back from 1991 it was 155 truck it was a private dwelling and i love this video because you have this very junior firefighter with this very senior firefighter. And you could tell that the young guy is like chomping at the bit and he wants to take the windows. He wants to get going. And so the old guy is just like, hold on, (laughs) you know, like, and he kept asking, do you have water? Do you have water? And then finally he says, I got water. And then you see them taking the windows and then you see the, the, the stream coming out the window. And I think we've, we've, we've really, done a great job with controlling ventilation now there's a lot of communication going on because on the fire floor the truck officer controls the ventilation right so he's coordinating with his um outside vent firefighter or the chauffeur whoever may be on the fire escape or in the front Uh, because you know we always want to be opposite of where the line is going to go and also even the firefighter on the roof like we're not so quick anymore to like it used to be nothing shall deter the roof firefighter from getting to the roof. And, you know, and you just the first thing you did is you get up there, you check this, this, the sides real quick. You check over, boom, and you get over to the, and you pop that bulkhead or the scuttle or whatever, you know. And I think there's more awareness now of how the ventilation affects the fire. You know, we don't want to be pulling it. We don't want to be drawing. We don't want to be creating flow paths. So. Right. You know, and the the time that we the, the the times that we have problems, believe it or not, is when people other than firefighters get involved, and they think they're doing the right thing, and they start kicking in doors, and they start smashing windows, and whatever. And then we're dealing with now trying to fix this mess, you know, because we, you know, we're 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 trained now; it's drilled into every firefighter's head to like, okay. We're going to control the front door. That's another change. I mean, we used to, I was taught when I, when I popped the door, take my ax and throw it under the door, make sure we don't get, you know, we don't get um, trapped. And now we're very aware of controlling the door, controlling the door in the stairway, controlling the windows. Um, so there's a lot of control going on ventilation where it would have been a little more, maybe 35 years ago. Not so much. Uh, it would be important, but not. It wouldn't be the biggest thing that we'd worry about, you know. Yeah, I I'm really interested in this idea of ventilation because I've heard for a long time I've heard um, the term used coordinated ventilation, but it was a long time before anybody really articulated what does that mean. 
what does it really mean to be coordinated in your ventilation? What would you say to that question? How do you define coordinated ventilation? So coordinated ventilation means that the truck officer is at the door to the apartment, right? Or private house. Most of them, most of the nation is private dwellings, right? So, so what he's doing, he or she is, has a hand on the door and they're controlling, you know, the, the, the airflow. And then what they're waiting for is the engine to come up and then call for water. Okay. Start water. See that water, see the water in line, let it flow a little bit, you know, let it bleed it a little bit. And once we know we have established a positive water flow, okay, ladder X, 99 to OV, okay, take the windows, right? Because now we know that we have a positive water source. Because, you know, if we, um, I've seen it, you know, if we don't coordinate that ventilation, you know, once, it's like no, it's no, it's like you can't get that tiger back into the cage. You know, the biggest, right. the biggest, uh, like one of the, the best comments I've ever heard on my job is that if the first two truck company in a high rise crawls down the hallway and gets control of that front door, they've done their job. Because that's how critical it is. Because when you're on upper floors, let's say you have a fire on the 10th floor or above or whatever, it doesn't even matter what floor you're on. I mean, a lot of these oceanfront places that have like, you know, wind coming in, even like where my mom used to live, her, she was in a high rise. And I mean, there was times when I come into our apartment, I could barely open the door if the, if the windows are open. So if we don't have control of that door, it's going to be very difficult to get down that hallway because then we have what we call a wind driven event. And sometimes it's just, it's just no amount of, of water is going to be able to counteract that that wind driven event so that's why it's all about yeah. it's all about door control you know and if we could better yet if we could get into the apartment and get to the bedroom and close that door that's even better so it's like it goes in stages right and one thing that i i kind of was aware of on my own like i i figured this out about 25 years ago is that in because i went i worked in a project area like high rises i had a lot of uh, new york city housing project area you know in the south bronx and i remember thinking to myself like there's no difference between this public hallway and this long 50 foot hallway with the two doors right the a and the b and the apartment right because there's no windows so once that door is open that's the fire area right and sure enough that's they, they come up with it 20 years later they're like oh yeah we're going to treat the the common hallway as the fire area because it is you know, because if we don't have control of that front door, right, and the windows fail, then we have to charge the hose line in the attack stair, right? We, but if we have control of that door, right, the officer has it, right, we can now bring that line uncharged to the door and then charge it. But we have to have control of that door. That's that's the key. Yeah, that's I like what stuff. I like what you're saying about coordinated ventilation. It's it it's reminding me of um, the phrase that I mean, water has to be imminent. It either has to be on the fire, or it needs to. We need to know that as soon as ventilation occurs, we're going to start seeing water application. Mm -hmm. And 
Phil Jose, uh, retired deputy chief from Seattle who teaches the art of reading smoke now, he said something once that really stuck with me, which is it's better to ventilate late than it is early. And that's consistent with what you're saying, I think, is that if we lose control of that door and ventilation is happening and we're creating a flow path, we can't get the, the genie back in the bottle. Mm-mm. That heat release rate is, is taken off and, and things are growing ex- exponentially. So mm-hmm. um, let's, talk, let's jump to uh, an article you wrote in 2019, and it was entitled Going Above the Fire. And the reason that this article was so interesting to me is because it kind of relates to a couple of points uh, that we've talked about already is one that your experience, I know from your writing that you have experience operating in this position and can speak to some of the the hazards and things that can go wrong when you're above the fire. Um, but something that you and I have talked about online or offline that I'd like to spend some time on today too is... Um, the danger of training our folks into bad habits. And where I'm from, sometimes we'll refer to that as training scars. We've done something in the training environment that has taught you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we've taught you a bad habit that if you do that in the real world, it's not going to uh, have the effect that you expect or that we want. And so going above the fire, the way that relates to going above the fire is that um, in a training environment, we can put people on floor two above a floor one fire in a non-combustible building with a single room below that is your fuel room. And they're not going to experience the adverse conditions that you might experience in real life if that fire makes floor two. And I, I've, I've always felt that there's a chance of being somewhat complacent about the dangers of operating on floor two when you when you haven't had the benefit of the experience, you haven't you haven't really seen the potential of what can happen on floor two. So that's kind of a long introduction, but it kind of lets you know why why I think that was such an interesting article because I'd like to hear your experience about that and 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 maybe even just why you wrote that article. Apparently, um, that was important information that you wanted to get out as well. Right. So. Brannigan, I'm a I'm a student. I like I like Brannigan's um, his book uh, Building Construction, and he talks about he says when he talks about void spaces, he said fire can break out of concealed spaces with lightning speed and kill more firefighters and collapse. And um, I agree with that wholeheartedly because. <laughs> Especially with modern construction, right? With so much trusses now and uh, and all these renovations, like, you know, it's all based on construction, right? So a type, uh, I have to use my NFPA, type, uh, what is that now? Three is a non-combustible type, five, um, what's the, we call, we call them type four, type five, I guess, private wood construction. Lightweight. Right? Yeah. Type five. So those types of construction have lots of voids, right? And once fire gets into those void spaces, um, it could burn unchecked. If you if you don't know where to look, if you don't if you don't check properly, and what I'm afraid of, this new generation, and I'm not trying to sound like an old fool or whatever, old fart, but um, I'm afraid that fi- this new generation of firefighters look at this thermal imaging camera, 
like they, it's like a magic wand. Like they're just going to look at and scan and say, okay, we got no fire. We got no fire. And, you know, I came on, there was no, we didn't have thermal imaging cameras when I came on. Right. We didn't have bunker gear. I mean, we just had boots and not even a hood or nothing, just a helmet and a coat. And uh, you could feel the heat. You weren't encapsulated, you know, so that's big, man. On the floor above, man, you you got to know your surroundings. If you're encapsulated and now you're relying on this camera to tell you whether you're in, you know, good shape or not, that's a that's a recipe for disaster. You know, like I'm from the school of like, I hate, you know, I used to have my glove off and put my hand on the wall. And if it was hot, open it up. So that's my concern about the floor um the floor above and um you know you have to be aware your senses have to be really dialed in like i used to love to be on the floor above because i would worked in a squad we did a lot of work on the floor above and you know you feel that hose line hitting the bottom of your boots you know hitting you in the knees like you could feel it vibrating on the floor and you know they're moving that line in, right and when <laughs> when you don't feel like if you're above now and you're not feeling that that vibration, you know, and that sound of that water splattering off the ceiling and stuff, that's concern, you know. And I think we have to, you know, we have to do what we need to do on the floor above and then be done with it. Like we don't want to spend all, uh, too much time up there. Like I had one lieutenant, uh, this guy Frank O'Grady, when I was a 17 truck, and I remember one time. He held us back. He said, we're not going above. There's no water. He said, when they get water, we'll go above. And then finally, they were having problems with water. They got water, and then we went above. You know, But um, there is a great danger on, on the floor above because once that fire gets into those void spaces, it doesn't take much for it to break out. You know? And um, a good friend of mine was killed. In Queens, Pete McLaughlin, when the fire was in this concealed space, and I guess he must have threw his hook up into the ceiling and it blew down and it flashed over, uh, backdraft, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, he, he succumbed. But um, it's just a, it's a dangerous place to be. And if it's, it's, but it's based on construction. If you're in a wood frame, well, especially a lightweight or even a class three, a type three, you know, ordinary construction, you know, the floor above could be a real dangerous place. And uh, what's concerning me now is that, like, most of America, they'll take a timber, a Type 4, and used to be a factory, let's say. And now they turn it into apartments and they create lots of voids. So fire could be burning unchecked up in that void space. And you're above that, you know, it just keeps heating up, you know, to the point where, uh, you know, what, 1112 degrees, now you have a flash hole. And uh, it's a very, it's just a, such a dangerous place to be. And I did so much, I did so much work on the floors above, you know, and I just, I, I remember uh, my lieutenant, Dennis Calopy, when I was a 17, like one of the first fires I went to, and we were going above. And he told me, he said, before we force that door, which is the, the floor above, the directly apartment above, we're going to force this off door first because that's where we're going if things go bad. So you, 
and that kind of ties into like that Lisey's thing. But um, you know, yeah. we have to uh, we have to make assured that we have a second means of egress before we we go above, and we got to unless there's life. I mean that that trumps everything. But unless there's a known life hazard or a very strong suspicion that there's a, a life hazard, um, we got to make sure we have water uh, in place before we go above. And so what does it sound like uh, uh, a well-coordinated operation where you've got fire attack moving in on the lower floor and you've got that truck company or that floor, that company that's going to go to floor two and, and do a search, look for extension. Mm -hmm. Um, What is the, what is the, how do they coordinate? It's a communication process, right? What does that sound like? So yeah, what I would do, um, well, I was a firefighter in a truck company. And then I went to the squad. But when I became an officer, I, I worked in, as an engine officer in Harlem. I was in 58 engine. And uh, there's this like kind of face-to-face. Like, you know, you're at the, the door. You know, you're waiting for water. And uh, the second dude truck comes by. And you look at the officer in the eyes and say, he'll say, I'm going above. And we've just made a contract that... Mm. Right now, your life is in my hands because I'm telling you that I'm I'm going to go in there with this line and put this fire out because you're above me, you know. And uh, what's critical? <laughs> this is why we give this urgent message, right? If if for some reason I've had this happen where we had a burst length or kinks or whatever it is, you know, urgent, 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 engine ninety nine. Uh, we, we have a water loss that tells the firefighters above, like, Hey, listen, we don't have, we don't have that protection anymore. We have to either find a, a safe place to go, or we have to come back down. So it's just extremely important. But when it really works well is when that second do truck officer gets a face to face and it could, in any department, whoever's going above needs to get face-to-face with whoever's in control at a hose line and let them know I'm going above. Right. And then you've, you've just signed the contract with that person, a life kind of like a, like a life contract. Like I'm, my life is in your hands right now. I really like that language. Um, you know, a contract, it, it, it denotes the seriousness of it. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a small decision to put a floor, uh, put a company above the, the fire. Um, so the next question that I have for you is about, um, again, about that impression that I had that on um, your willingness to change. And you've called yourself a student. And um, one of the things you wrote in an article about avoiding complacency, and I think you've got a couple of articles at least on this topic, but um, you sound like a student in this because even with all of your experience, you're talking about finding ways to avoid complacency. And specifically, one of the things you mentioned in this article that I thought was interesting was the benefits to FDNY when, um, when they brought on EMS. And mm. I'm, not, I'm not super familiar with how EMS works with your system. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about that. Like, what did you mean when you said we, when we brought on EMS and then what was the, the impact that you felt was such a great benefit to engine companies? 
Okay. So the benefit of the EMS is that historically, when I came on the job, you get a phone alarm for fire and the truck company goes up into the building and they force the door, whatever you do, they get to the, and it's a food on the stove or it's a, whatever it is, small fire. The engine would be in the street waiting to stretch the hose line. And then it'd be, okay, ladder one seven to engine six oh. Hold the line. We don't need the line. So the firefighters never got into that building. So the truck company, you know, we go to gas leaks. We go to water leaks. We go to electrical emergencies. You name it. We're in that building all the time. And I got to the point where I knew my building so well. I mean, the whole Bronx is like my backyard, really. I mean, you could give me an address and I could tell you the building. I could Then I could tell you the layouts of the apartments, you know. And that's because I, I grew up in the city and I've been in the Bronx for most of my career, 37 years, right? So I have a really good idea of what these apartments look like. The firefighters in the engine never got into these apartments. They were just, you know, okay, 1018, uh, we're going to take up. And the engine never got into the building. Then EMS started in 19... 19- I want to say 1995. I got promoted to Lieutenant 95. So it started in June of 95, I think, because I got promoted in September. And I remember doing it just for a, a very brief time as a firefighter. I might have went to one EMS call as a firefighter when I was in the squad. And uh, But once I became a lieutenant, I was working in uh, engine companies. Um, we were doing a lot of EMS calls. We were in these buildings all the time. We were getting, you know, we were getting more exposure to the buildings now than the truck home. So now we get an address, 400 Brook Avenue, and 60 engines probably been in that building a hundred times. They know where the stairways are. They know where the standpipes are. They know the layouts of the apartments. They know how many apartments are on the floor. They know all that stuff. Where, you know, 35 years ago, 30 years ago, they, they're lucky. Maybe if they worked in the truck, they might have been in that building once. So from a, a size-up perspective, um, the EMS has given the engine firefighters such a, an advantage because they're getting to know their buildings very, very like intimately, more so than even the truck companies. So tell me about your thoughts about complacency in general then. Um, I'm guilty because, of that. Yeah, I'm guilty of it a lot. Well, because, I think we all are. Because but what happens is, you, yeah, I. I'll, what will happen is, uh, let's say it's uh, eight o'clock at night, right? Seven o'clock at night, and you know I've done this so many times, you know, and I get a phone alarm for smoke, you know, in uh, twelve fifty-two Lafayette Avenue, you know, apartment six C, and I'm like. Yeah, food on the stove. You know, like in my mind already, I'm like, okay, you know, or, you know, class three alarm for, uh, you know, Ho Avenue, whatever it is, you know, like I'm so, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm just getting so like beat up by like, like so much nonsense, you know, that sometimes you're like, oh boy, (laughs) like, okay, you know. It's, you know, I mean, I I can honestly say, though, I don't think I've ever been 
caught complacent where it would negative, like it was a negative effect on anybody. But it just personally, like, like just a shock, like, oh man, like I didn't expect that. Like, you know, I'm thinking like one source, you know, because usually when these days now when we get a, a legitimate fire with cell phones and everything, you know, we're getting like 10 phone calls, you know, they're lighting up the board, you know, so, but it's so, it's like, it's just knowing your area. Like if I get a phone alarm for a fire in a private dwelling at three o'clock in the morning down at the back of my district, it's, I say to myself, that's a fire, you know? But if I get that same call, you know, at, at six o'clock and it's for odor of smoke, I'm like thinking to myself, like probably some nonsense, you know? So I think uh, what it's a discipline is to stop. Just don't project anything. Just take every call like it was the first time you're going to, to a call, like, you know, the seriousness. I remember... Uh, I remember back in the, it was like 86, uh, we used to get this thing, uh, ERS boxes, right? They were just street boxes, right? People would just all night, all night, hit the button, hit the button. And generally what would happen is um, like the engine would go out for what we call an ERS box. And then 30 seconds or a minute later, the tones would go off again, fill out alarm, second source, report of a fire. I mean, it was always a fire, you know? And I just remember this one time I was actually working in the engine and it was just single source, just an ERS box. Someone just walked by and hit the button. Boom. And we pull up and there's people hanging out every window. Fires ripping through a first floor uh, fish store or something, you know, and people like literally hanging out every window and we were by ourselves. You know? So, you know, that sometimes it's unavoidable and, and, and this, the complacency is with the, with the quarter alarms, the class threes, you know, like uh, we call them class threes. Um, I don't know what the rest of the country calls them, but they're the recorded alarms that go off, you know, and uh, there's some opportunities for complacency there as well. You wrote in that article that uh, even after all these years on the job, there isn't a fire you go to where you don't learn something. My lieutenant, same lieutenant, Dennis Calpe, when he, he I remember, and I, you got to picture me being a probing 17 truck, you know, working with all these Vietnam vets, these guys, Korean vets, you know, and he, guys that had 20 years in a fire department to me were like kind of iconic, you know, like just my heroes, you know. And I remember him saying this one time, he said, he said, you never stop learning on this job. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know everything. And you've been on the job for 20 years. He says, I got 20 years in a job. I keep learning. And I always remembered that. It always stuck in my mind that, like, you know, you are always learning, you know, and it's like, it's kind of cool, man, because, you know, like, you know, you, you can't know everything on this job. It's just, it's just too much to know. And it doesn't always have to be fire. It could be anything. It could be a car accident. It could be whatever. But you have to be teachable because if you're not teachable and once you shut down and you think you know everything, you know, it's, you're in a bad spot. Yeah. You, uh, you know, 37 years on and you, you said the Bronx is like your backyard, but I know that you've also said other places that you've got not a lot of experience with lightweight construction just mm-hmm. because of where you've spent most of your career and yeah. that 
that most of what you know about working in with lightweight construction is from what you've read reading. Mm-hmm. What role, and you mentioned being a student, what role does reading and play in your um, own personal preparation process for, for areas of, of what might be um, inexperience, even despite all this, this huge amount of experience you have in one area, right. but maybe not so much in another? Yeah, I, li- I like challenges. You know, that's just my personality. Like a good buddy of mine, we came on the job together. We went to 17 truck together. We're both waiting to get promoted to deputy. And we've caught, we've got caught twice in very close calls. <laughs> and uh, he runs the Marine division, right? He's the chief of the Marine division. He's Italian chief, Frank, Frank Simpson. And uh, I said to him, I said, you know, this is my last, probably my last year as battalion chief. And I always wanted to work in the Marine division, you know, and, he said, "Come on in." So I've been on I've been on sabbatical this summer. I have I have a lot of time accumulated, so I have this beach house here, and I'm I've been spending the whole summer on the beach. But I do come in once every week or two just to to work in the Marine Division, just because I always I just think it's fascinating to work on the Marine boats, you know. But that being said, it's like I'm a probie. I go in there, I, mm. I carry my book with me, my checklist. I have a million questions. I've never, ever done any Marine firefighting, you know? And, you know, we just had this fire in Newark um, about a month ago where we lost uh, two firefighters from Newark, I think. Um, it was, a, sh- it was a, sh- uh, a, a ship fire that was uh, transporting cars, you know? Mm. And yeah. uh, I know zero about that. Um, you know, as far as the lightweight, I just try to read read as much as I can. Um, you know, and I try to recognize it when I can because why? Why I am in the South Bronx, all the the uh, tenements that they tore down, they replaced them with these, you know, lightweight, uh, you know, private dwellings or whatever. And then the ones that they renovated. They've used lightweight materials to renovate the buildings and they get intertwined with the the ordinary construction. And that scares right. me because we had a third alarm, I think, uh in a in a in the tenement. And uh half the roof was lightweight. And then I had a fire, I don't know, a few months ago in a taxpayer, and half half of that was lightweight. And it was inter intermixed with the to traditional ordinary construction. So, you know, once that sheetrock goes up, you know, it's hidden, you know, and it's scary because, um, yeah. you know, these trusses, once one fails, like just, uh, I just, I, I'm a big bike rider, you know, and I was riding my bike and um, I was on this back country road, you know, it's like in the middle of nowhere. And I see all this news media and, uh, police department, the morgue, all these like big, big scene, you know, and I asked one of the people in the street, I said, what's going on? I said, I was a, a roof collapsed, you know, and I looked, it was truss, lightweight truss, you know, and uh, it wasn't even a fire. <laughs> it was just, mm. maybe it was some wind or whatever it was, you know, and uh, one worker was killed and the other one was seriously injured, you know, and it wasn't even a fire. So lightweight really scares me. 
you know, and I, I think the key to lightweight firefighting is identify it early, address it. And then if you're not making headway, like that 20 minute window was gone. Yeah. If it's six minutes and if it's into the structure, then you have to pull everybody out. Yeah. One last thing on, um, complacency, uh, that what you said made me remember something that I got, that I learned in medic school. And you were talking about a, um, situation where you hear a certain alarm at a certain time of night and you, you've got a, I know what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that has both benefits and potential for complacency, but it's, you've developed this amazing depth of experience where you've just got those slides that are there and they come up quick. But the thing I learned in medic school was um, to avoid complacency is to remember weirdest, worst, most likely. Our brains tend to jump right into most likely. Oh, I've done this a hundred times. I know what this is, mm-hmm. right? But if you just are aware that you're doing that and remember to say to yourself, what's the weirdest thing that this could be? What would surprise me? Or what's the, what's the worst thing this could be? That's helped me as a medic anyway. Um, and it, 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 if you make that part of your discipline, like you said, of, and I'm not saying you, Danny Sheridan, I'm just thinking more mm-hmm. generally. Um, if you make that part of the discipline, you can kind of help yourself avoid just diving into most, most likely and staying there and then finding yourselves on your heels when you arrive and it was something else. Um, we talked a little, you, you just mentioned the, the LCES thing. I know that you and Tony Carroll talked about this on your, one of your recent podcasts. And I thought, it was, you guys had some really interesting conversation about this idea of taking, uh, you were suggesting or bringing up the idea of bringing LCES from the wildland setting into the structural setting. And um, it led to some conversations about staffing that I thought was particularly interesting. Can you uh, just share here today with us kind of what your thoughts were about LCES and how they might be applied in the structure setting? Yeah, well... I think mostly like when we're going above or on the roof, you know, because um, what happens is I get, uh, well, firefighters sometimes get a little tunnel, tunnel vision, right? They see one thing and I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So one time I'm working in the 82 engine, I'm a captain and uh, this guy, Eddie Doyle, who's, you know, nozzle. And the chief told me, go up to bring a, bring a hose line up to the roof, you know? And, uh, so I climb the portable ladder, and there's a chasm, not a, not a gap, a chasm, maybe about two feet, right? The bearing wall the, was, was pulled away, and the roof is like over here. And I stepped over it, you know, and I just went on my way because I was so focused on getting this hose line up there. And Eddie just looks at me, laughs. God rest his soul. He, he died of cancer. But uh, he just looked at me and goes, Cap. <laughs> and he points, and I'm like, Oh man, you know what I mean? Like I, I blew right past it. I didn't even think twice about it. You know, I get on the radio, urgent collapse, you know, whatever feared or whatever, pulled everyone off the roof and, you know, cause the, the wall was out, you know, and it took somebody else to, to see it, you mm. know, like, so that's like kind of a lookout, you know, um, that's a good example. 
And then, you know, we have to have decent comms, you know, like if you, if you have something going on and you can't communicate the message, like what happens a lot on the roof, um, you know, when the saws are going, right. You know, you got the saws and the guys are cutting, you know, and there's a lot going on and towel ladders are going and what, you know, it's very hard, very difficult. Like I just had this right before I went on my sabbatical, I caught this job with the ninth alarm. I was on the roof of this building, you know, and, uh, it was just so much going on. You know, and I couldn't even get my messages to the command post, you know, like, you know, roof sector, the command and like nothing, no one's answering, you know, we have to make sure that we have good communications, right? Because I had some serious stuff going on, man. I had like extension and the roof was collapsing and I couldn't get my messages through, you know, so we have to have good comms, you know, um, as far as like escape routes. You know, like, I think that has to be identified very early, especially when you own above. Like, you know, you go above, there's four apartments. Okay, two in the front, two in the back. The fire's in the front. Okay, things go bad. This is our way up. Things, if it hits the fan, this is how we're getting out, you know. Or on the roof. And you get up to the roof and, you know, you got a heavy fire in the cockloft. You know, make sure you have an aerial on both sides. Right? I'm on both sides. So, okay, if things go sideways, this is our way out. You don't want to get trapped. You don't want to back yourself into a corner where now you, you know, you don't have a way out, right? And, or if, uh, like a safety zone, like they do that in the wildland, they call it the black, right? So, like, they try to work, they, you know, very cognizant of the wind and all that stuff. And so, they, the black means that everything that's already been burnt down, it's not going to reburn. Right. They watch the wind. So, they want to have the, the wind at their backs or whatever. So, the same if you're on a roof or, uh, again, if you're on the floor above, you know, you want to have that safety zone, you know, where you know that you can go, that you're, you're going to be fine, you know. And I, I just thought there would be a great application in the wild, you know, from the wildland into the, uh, you know, into the structural world. Because we used to have, when we had four or five fighters on the line in the engine couplings, right? So we would have the nozzle, the backup. We had a firefighter that was called the door firefighter, right? Because you had the control firefighter. He's the one that's working with the chauffeur. Because we have these big buildings, right? They're like six, seven stories, right? So it's, these stretches are pretty long. But you had that one firefighter, the door firefighter. He was like the your free safety, you know? And part of his job was to be at the door, right? He'd be at the door of the apartment, and he'd be feeding the line. But also his job was to... Watch everything. Watch the progress of the line going in, making sure fire is not over their heads or wrapping around them now. And he's watching who's going above. And he was basically the lookout, for lack of a better word. And we lost that firefight. So, you know, if you if you have, you know, I know a lot of a lot of departments have to multitask. I, I speak to guys from small departments, and you know, they're like juggling like five different things going on they got irons they got the nozzle they got, you know they got like five different jobs to do you know but if you had the luxury of having that firefighter that could just be away from the action not so focused on what's going on just to take a broader look like the bigger picture that would be very helpful 
Uh, help me understand the the staffing for FDNY on the engine company. You, you mentioned that you've lost that firefighter. What is the staffing on a on an engine at FDNY? So to compensate for the loss of that door firefighter, some we still have some engines that have five firefighters in an officer. So it's actually six total. And the officer doesn't his job too is to supervise. He's got to see the bigger picture. But so what we'll do now is we'll team up two engines to get that first line operation. So we actually we have a nozzle firefighter, a backup firefighter, control firefighter, and then the other company has a nozzle backup and control. So we'll have six firefighters, you know, stretching a hose line and two officers. So maybe the second officer might wear that hat. He might be the guy that's at the door now doing that job, looking mm-hmm. looking at the progress, looking at what's going on above. Because, you know, I've been to fires where, you know, I get reports like all visible fires knocked down and you look and it's like, there's still three rooms burning, you know? So, yeah, that's uh, an that, important job. That's the real the staffing challenge that I'm familiar with in my career is right. lots of expectations on that company officer to be the lookout, be responsible for communications, and making sure that their people are know where the escape route and safety zones are. And then they're responsible for being there. They are this, what would be the, the backup firefighter in your system. So they're right. helping move hose through the building, trying to listen to the radio, trying to read, have situational awareness about conditions. Um, and it's just not realistic. Honestly, when you talk about multitasking and all the science says you can do one thing well, you can't do two things well. As yeah. soon as you start multitasking, your level of awareness is diminished in some capacity inside the building with under the kind of conditions we've talked about today with today's fuel loads, your, your level of awareness is already diminished. You're starting at a much less than optimal situation. So that's a, I think that's a really, um, it's a really big challenge in, in, especially in departments that are staffed such that that company officer has to be a part of the working hands on the line, pushing hose, carrying tools, thermal imager. Like there, there's times where like I'll come in as the second chief, and uh, they call me the uh, fire sector. Right? That's what we call it, fire sector. It's really like an ops chief, right? So I'm on the fire floor, you know. Well, I'll go to a second alarm, and I might be on the floor above. And I wish I had a nickel for every time that my aide taps me on the shoulder like this and says, "Chief, they're calling you." <laughs> Mm, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, because you get wrapped up in, um, you know, you're watching this, you're watching that, you have your camera, you're, like trying to make sure fire's getting knocked down, you know, saws going yeah. on the roof, windows are being taken, it just the noise of the hose line. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, okay, Italian three to command, okay, you know. Um, let's jump to your, your podcast. And I know from conversations with you recently that you've um, you've kind of refocused the podcast, the first Duke Battalion Chief, and tell us about your your new refocusing and what you're trying to accomplish with that podcast. Right, I wanted to bring it back. I, I found myself, you know, being complacent, and after doing it for God knows how many years, I've been doing it for ten. I, I couldn't even tell you how many years I've been doing that podcast. 
And, uh, you know, I felt that like I never had, a, like there wasn't a theme to it. It was just like whatever popped into my head, like, okay, we'll do a show about this now. You know, or this is, this sounds good. And I wanted to get some good battalion chiefs, you know, and I have this guy from Boston. I have Eric Bataway and Tony Carroll from DC, you know, major league departments. And I wanted to, what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish is because the fire service has become so young, right? And, you know, the, the, like even in UL, they talk about the amount of activity has just dropped significantly due to so many factors, right? But when we get a fire, it's, it hits the fan, right? So what I, what I wanted Eric and Tony to do is um, let's talk about, like, we'll get inside our heads. Like, what, what are you thinking? You know, to make a young battalion chief, let's say there's a battalion chief, he's 40 years old, he just shot up, he was, he was a captain like two weeks ago, and he was just a firefighter 10 years ago. He's got 11 years on the job, and now he's the he's the guy, you know. Kind of mentoring, in a sense, like, you know, like, what are the things that we, we talk about? Like, you know, what, what what goes through my mind when a ticket comes over? Like, what what am I doing? I'm doing my, my size up. Cole was well, right? Quickly. Construction, occupancy, apparatus, uh, life, you know, water supply, uh, auxiliary appliances, street conditions, time of day, um, you know, weather, exposures, like all these things. I, I'm running through this very quickly. Like I know the I know the address. Okay, four hundred Brook Avenue, twenty story high rise. Okay, you know, I'm listening to the radio. Like, what's going on? We're getting numerous calls now, getting calls for smoke, 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 fire. Oh, wait, where was that fire coming from? Fifth floor. Okay, maybe we've got a fire on the fifth floor. You know, so, like, what I wanted Eric and Tony to do is, like, what do you guys do? Like, when you when you jump in that front seat, what's going through your mind? And Eric, too, man, Eric is, like, dynamite. He's, he's, he's the Boston chief. He's one of the best chiefs, so maybe the best battalion chief up in Boston. He's got a boatload of experience, you know, and, uh, you know, we talk about like what he does. He drives around. He tells me he drives around his neighborhood, <laughs> you know, like when he's off, like he'll just take a different route into work and just go down blocks and look at, look where there's trailers of debris. He's just dialed in, you know, and, uh, I think what the, that's what a battalion chief's all about. Like, you know, you have to, you have to be dialed in, you have to know what's happening. In your area, you have to be the expert. You know, like I always say, like when I'm on scene and there's a fire, or whatever, like the buck stops with me. Like there's like no, I'm not looking, and I'm not looking over my shoulder. Like oh please, man, I can't wait till the deputy gets here because he's gonna save the day. Like no, man, it's I, I'm gonna sort this out. Like and I, I want the guys to know that. Like if I want them to look at me like I used to look at guys like Kennedy and Kilker and Nick Visconti, like with that, like man, Nick Visconti's the chief, man. We're okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's confidence. That, yeah. It's, you know, like, like Patton talks about it, that command presence, you know, like, you, you know, you have to believe it. And I feel it now. Like, you know, I, I've earned it, you know, and Eric and Tony both, you know, they, they earned it, their spots, you know, and they're students of the game. You know what I mean? Like in, um, you know, I, I don't know. I just feel like uh, very, very few surprises. You know, like I, I'm really 
feel like, you know, I, I got to have my finger on a pulse. And I want, I want to convey that to the battalion chiefs that like, that's how they have to be like the patent. Of, like I, I would strongly recommend a, a read. It would be Patton's book on, on leadership because the stuff that he talks about, is just so applicable, even though it's the, the military, it, it applies to the fire service, you know, like talks about micromanaging and command presence, you know, and just leadership in general, you know, and just, you know, just like my father-in-law was battalion chief, you know, he used to tell me he was firm, but fair, you know, and he had a great reputation and he had been through all the war years and he had a great reputation in his battalion. He had 37 years on the job. I'd seen it all. And uh, that's what you want. And you want guys to look at you and, like, you know, this guy is the real deal. You know, being calm, like never screaming. Don't ever scream on a radio, man. Like, the guy told me, this guy, Jimmy Duffy from uh, Connecticut, he said one time, he says, you got to be like a duck on a pond. He says, their feet could go in a million miles an hour below below the surface but you got to give that nice calm appearance you know like nothing's gonna rattle like and that's how you have to look you have to be calm just nice and calm see the big picture you know what i mean be be the chief you know i had a girl one time we were down in ecuador and she told this chief she said to him she says she says you know what you're the chief act like the chief Mm. so yeah how do you take that no, not not well. <laughs> not well. <laughs> she's a tough. She was a tough lady. <laughs> she's like, you know, you got to be decisive. I hate, you know, like, you know, I always say, like, you know, you can make a decision, and if it's wrong, listen, you made the decision. So you know, you can't, you know, even Luke, Joe DiMaggio hit three fifty six or whatever. You know what I mean? Like he hit three hundred. You know, you make a decision, but. The worst thing is no decision. You know, if you stand there like, well, I don't know, uh, you know, like, I'm not sure, you know, like, no, I think I, you know, you got to, you got to be decisive, like, boom. And if you're wrong, you hope that no one gets hurt, you know, but that's, that's what the, the podcast is about. You know, like just, um, I'm hoping, you know, young battalion chiefs, captains, whoever's in that IC position could just get one takeaway. Like, okay, no, this is, this is, yeah. I wish well, like, speak, you know, yeah. Speaking of one takeaway, the next question I have for you is, um, what do you know now as this experienced battalion chief with all these years in the position? And you, you've said that you, you, it's not easy for you to be surprised. What do you know now that you had to learn the hard way? Do you wish they wish there'd been a podcast for you or something, something for you to help you prepare for the position that you might've saved you some, some pain learning it the hard way. I don't know if there was any pain, but I'll tell you one thing that I've learned. And, um, it's just, you have to go with your instincts, with your gut, you know, like every time that, and it doesn't always have to be fire. It could be anything in life, but like, I was telling this woman yesterday, I had an instance here where my uncle had this house before I took it over and he had someone come to rent it. And the person showed up like I thought he just walked out of a, like a, a, out of a prison, to be honest with you. And I was trying not to be judgmental. You know, I was like, oh, well, 
who am I to be so judgmental, right? And, uh, you know, the baby in his hand, he had the girlfriend, whatever it was. And, and my gut told me that this guy was just bad news, you know? And, uh, so I acquiesced and I went against my gut and we wound up renting this house to him. And, uh, it was, it was one of the worst experiences I've had in my life. The guy was a pedophile, sex offender, um, was in jail. He beat his girlfriend almost to death in his house. I mean, it was just, and I knew it. My gut told me when I, as soon as he opened the door, I said, no, this guy's, this guy's bad news. But then I went against my gut and I was like, all right, maybe, you know, who am I to judge? And I paid bitterly for that, you know? So it's the same in the fire service. I mean, if it doesn't feel right, I've had this discussion with guys I used to work with in 17 truck, you know, it's just that like this guy, Billy Lawson, man, he probably saved my life three times. And it was always his gut. Like I said, this guy is like prophetic, man. Like, how does he know this? Man? You know, like this, this building, we were at a building one time, it just collapsed. And he's just like, he pulls me out of the way. Another time we're on the fifth floor of a building, fourth floor. He pulls me, the building collapses and the guy goes down. You know what I mean? Like, and he, I said, Billy, man, how did you know that? He says, I just go in my gut. He says, I feel it. I can feel it. I know it. Mm. You know? So I, I would, my advice to any new chief, you know, if it doesn't feel right, and it's giving you like that angst a little bit, then something's wrong. That's, that's, that's a big, that's a big part of being the Italian chief is you have to go with your gut. Because uh, if you don't, you, your gut, it's just like we always tell guys when they take a promotional exam. It's like your first instinct, that, that first choice is always the right one. And then when you like you start wavering, you're like, oh, well, wait, that sounds good too. And then you're lost. Then you, you're, doomed <laughs> to get, you're bound to get it wrong. Mm. Most of the time, our, gut, our guts are right. You know, so. Yeah. I tell my daughter that all the time. She's a PA. You know, and she's in a very similar kind of, uh, you know, she's medical, but she's a physician's assistant. She's learned that from me. She goes a lot with her gut. You know, she's like, yeah, this didn't feel right. You know, I, I, I went against the doc. She was going against doctors, man. Like, no, no, no. And she sticks to her guns to get that from me, you know. I I just read something about this yet today, actually, this morning for the podcast, and it said that the your gut is your uh, unconscious becoming conscious. So it's something that you know. It's not your gut necessarily, right? That's just what, how we describe it. But mm-hmm. you, yeah. you're seeing something. You know something. You just don't know it the way you right. you're consciously know something. You know. Yeah. I think that's good advice. I like I like that. Let's close out with uh, what does success look like to you, Chief? How do you how do you define success for yourself? Wait, you mean like on the fire ground? It can be anything. It can be personal success. It can be professional success. What does your gut tell you? What's your first response when? Yeah, I I, I I'm really a big fan of like like guys doing their job. You know, like going to their position. And when I say guys. I don't want the ladies to be offended. I have three daughters and I call them guys all the time. So I have this tendency to say guys and it's, it's just generic. It's a term I use for firefighters. But uh, just right before I had my sabbatical, um, we had a call for, uh, for uh, odor smoke, you know, and um, 
it's it's really ironic too because two days ago something else happened but we had an odor of smoke and uh you know i'm sitting in my car it's like three o'clock in the morning and my lieutenant gave me a report he says yeah we think it's oil burning i my gut told me it wasn't the oil burner. I could just, it didn't feel right. It did not feel like it was an oil burner. And I just kind of went along with it. And then the next thing that happens is I hear the roof firefighter. He gives a report, uh, you know, roof to command. He says, uh, we got a fire on the roof of the exposure, you know. And I was like, yeah, that's it. Because I, I, sm- I could smell it. I knew it was, it was an oil burner smoke, you know. And uh, we went up there and, it, you know, it had burned through down into the, but it didn't get anywhere. Ironically, that same building burnt two days ago, top floor, the whole top floor is gone. Two days ago. It was big news. My, my neighbor told me, saw it on the news. It was the same exact building. So, you know, success for me is like when guys go to their positions and even though they're doing it over and over and like that roof man could have very easily said, it's an oil burner. I don't need to go there. You know what I mean? I'll just hang out down here, you know. But when guys go to where they're supposed to go and then something good happens like that, that's success, you know. That's success, man. When Because, you know, it's funny. Like, I I feel like like when I work, like, we've, we don't, I don't know, sometimes I, like I feel like we don't get the big fires, man. You know what I mean? Like, you'll, you'll never see, like, I... I I've been a battalion chief for 15 years and I could count maybe twice that I had to give a second along. You know what I mean? And it's just because I, f- I feel like, you know, we have to hit it hard, man, hit it hard and fast. And I've done that always, man. Just hit it hard. Like, don't, don't hold back. Like go with your gut. We got to fight, get that hose line stretched. Don't wait. Let's get everybody in place, and then, and usually it's it's very successful. You know, it's a it's a good way to do it. You know, instead of like hanging back a little bit, let's wait and see. Uh, okay, oh, next thing you know, oh, yeah, we got uh, two rooms of fire. Okay, but we've already had the hose line up there. So that to me, that's success. I think is just being proactive and putting guys where they're supposed to be. You know. Well, Chief, I've really enjoyed this conversation today. It's been uh it's been a pleasure for me. And I think that uh um uh, my curiosity and my uh my hopes were were uh were met that we'd cover these topics. It was really nice to to uh hear straight from you on some of the things that I've read from you, you know, and I do very much appreciate um that the way you describe yourself as being a student and, and with all this experience um, still being open to change because it's happening fast in the world. It's happening in the fire service. And I think that you're setting a tremendous example for leadership in the fire service. So thank you. You got to excuse my, I got, um, I rode my bike um, before the podcast. I went out and did like a lot of Hills, you know, like like 25, 26 miles, whatever. That's like a light ride. I'm getting, um, ready for a ride that we're doing on September 9th for the 343 for the wounded warriors, you know? So I, I do a lot of biking, so I'm a little dehydrated. So that's why. I'm What's a long ride on. for you? That eh, 25 miles is not much. That's a, that's What's a long a, one. 
that's a um, what I call like a cool down ride. Oh, wow. I did fifty yesterday, so that's like a cool wow. down. Wow. The only problem about riding a bike is that it just takes so much time. <laughs> you know, when I used yeah. to run, I go out and run five miles, and I'd be back in uh, you know forty minutes. You know, now it's uh, it's a two three hour ordeal to ride. You know, so, right? And there's so many darn hills up here; it's crazy. So anyway, but Rob, um, yeah, thanks for having me, and good yeah. luck with your podcast. I hope I wish you a lot of success. Yeah, thank you. So, um. All right. Well, I I'll uh, I'll keep listening to your podcast and uh, hope to have another chance to talk with you again in the future. Let's hope I get promoted to deputy chief. I'll know uh, within uh, hopefully by God willing, maybe next week. We'll see. All right. I'll look for the announcement. Let's see. Okay. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take ten seconds to leave us a five star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community and we'll catch you in the next episode.